Welcome to episode one of On Relationships with Elaine Smuckler, Relationships columnist of Mindful Magazine. I'm Stephanie Tlalka, deputy editor of Mindful Digital. Today, we're talking about the relationship between mindfulness and happiness. Do we input mindfulness on one end through meditation and mindfulness practices, and then happiness comes out the other? Why can't we just make that feeling of well-being happen for us when we want it to? Through our chat, we'll also get to know Elaine a bit more. She tends to face things with a sense of humor, even when she was diagnosed with uterine cancer. Armed with laughter and a lot of resilience, she's gained a great deal of knowledge about what makes her happy and what drives her, particularly in moments of uncertainty, discomfort, and even in pain. So Elaine, you've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years now, and you're also on the faculty at the Center for Mindfulness in Toronto. But once you were also in the broadcasting business for a while, so you were working at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, you were moving up in the industry, but then, you know, something happened to you. Un uncertainty struck. They were grooming me for a national radio show, and I got down, it was me between me and one other person, they flew me to Calgary to be the host of this national radio show, and I, and I got there and I just felt and this is how I am. I, I've never been driven by success. Yeah. I'm driven only by my heart and my energy. And my heart and my energy said, literally, like, Elaine, I know, ego, you thought this is what you wanted. Was to, You said you wanted to host your own show and have a national every night for an hour. Like, I was going to, it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. But when I got there, I was like, it's not it. I can't be here. I can't do this. And so I had to, even though I had no idea what I was going to go to, I had to let it go. And it was such an interesting experience. I just said, this is not where I belong. I can't, I can't do this. Even though what you had next was complete uncertainty and probably a lot of fear tied to that, you still felt... What I had next was living with my parents for a year who I hadn't lived with in 20 years. <laughs> that still With no better. job, <laughs> with no money, with no prospects, with no clue who I was. I'd left Vancouver. I, I just moved, come back to Toronto, still not sure what I was going to do. They flew me to Calgary and it was going to be like, here's your next big thing. And there was my parents' uh, rec room, you know, kind of, or my parents, my dad's office in the condo actually. And, uh, where I was going to sleep on the futon, you know, bed Chesterfield, and there was a, a national radio show every single night. And I was like, I can't, I can't do what's not right for me. Mm -hmm. And it was a, but it was a powerful life moment because it was one of those meeting my ego moments where I went, oh, so my, so something in me is bigger than my ego? Who knew? <laughs> I thought my ego was the biggest part of me. <laughs> So your ego met your heart. Yeah, my ego ha met my heart, and 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 uh, really every single one, life has. I had an amazing, amazing life in Vancouver. I was a, a known personality there. I did lots of amazing things, and thought this is the biggest life will ever get for me. And life has gone ten times more amazing since hanging in there with myself and continuing to just follow my inner my inner guide which said don't look at don't don't worry about what it looks like don't stop stop paying attention to what it looks like you you're not going to know anything by what something looks like you're going to have to just go with the energy you'll know who you should be with you know who you should be working with you'll know 
you'll know what it is when you get there and that's what it's been I just take one step one step and so amazing stuff just every single day of my life is like a TV show every day has like a TV show storyline beginning middle end quality it's really really amazing really fun but when you say that it doesn't feel like that sort of like uh, you know, happy-go-lucky I'm reading the secret as I'm listening to you talk kind of every day is like a you know like like I'm picking flowers and putting them in a basket and giving it to a small child kind of feeling it's there's a um, there's a different kind of quality there's a substantial quality to that well as an example like yesterday as I was uh, on set and, and one of the topics that I talked about in the filming that we just did is happy the notion of happiness you know who we, everybody wants to pursue happiness and I and one of the things that I realized is first of all it's very challenging for us to know what makes us happy and and the notion of happiness is a very complicated idea so we may see that somebody has a fancy car or a nice house or a great body or whatever and think oh I, that's what I want but if you don't investigate it you may not you may discover actually that's not what I want and that is and getting that is not going to make me happy but then it's even more confusing so it takes a while to know well what would make me happy really and for me one of the things I discovered is I accept a certain amount of pain as part of happiness and that I think of it as roughage like in your diet so you would not want a diet of only smooth food unless you have a colon problem <laughs> you, you wouldn't accept a diet of sports cars it's it, a diet even just physical even just dietarily a diet of food that is only um, processed so in other words the notion of happiness being a car or this a career that looks like this money and a, a great body and a great spouse and or a handsome or beautiful spouse is to me like processed food it's a processed idea of happiness whereas my experience is just like with food you need roughage in your diet to keep it healthy a smooth a diet of only smooth food is what led kings to gout and problem you know like unhealthy it, it has many health issues but when you integrate roughage as it were into your diet then you then you're healthy mm -hmm. so I have had a lot of painful experiences that I treasure as part of what's made me human and compassionate and connected and awake and um, vibrant and technicolor and if I hadn't have had those experiences I don't know who I would have been I, I would have certainly not been somebody who had any insight and you know I've been through cancer mm -hmm. You know, I've had, which was amazing. <laughs> you know? It's amazing. Amazing yeah. at you. Not, not everyone obviously would describe that as an amazing experience. So here, I'll just share that. So here's an experience that happened. I'm on the, I'm on the gurney about to go in for my surgery for cancer. And I had, uh, and the orderly comes over and, you know, it's all very kind of automatic pilot, you know, like they have their clipboard and he goes, so uh, do you know what you're in for? You know, because they just ask you that all the time to make sure that they've got the right patient going in for the right surgery. Yeah. They just want to make sure that they haven't somehow weirdly done, they're about to do surgery on you and know that so-and-so over there and you're about to take my leg off and it's not gangrenous at all. So the orderly doesn't even look up at me, just says, um, he's looking at his clipboard, he says, so do you know what you're here for? And I went, yep, breast lift and tummy tuck. <laughs> and I was about to go in for cancer surgery. And he went, and he put his clipboard down and his face kind of went ash and he went, <laughs> and he went, really? I, you know what, I'll be right back. And I said, 
kidding. And he went, wow. We don't get a lot of people joking around as they're about to head in for surgery. I was like, you know, what beats the alternative. I'd rather. And then on the surgery table, too, like I, you know, I asked for a moment alone. I I had uterine cancer. I had asked for a moment alone with my uterus. And I reminded my surgeon, remember you told me you were going to save it. I'm going to make a backpack out of it. And she said, more like a change purse. I went, okay. <laughs> uh, you're the doctor. So what wait, do I know? You asked for a moment alone. With my uterus. Was this a- after the surgery? No. Okay. I'm on the tape. So now the gir- now the, they've wheeled me into, yeah. into the moment where, you know, you're lying on the table and all the surgeons are around you. They're about to put you under. Okay. Normally, you're not interacting. You're a hunk of meat on the table, yeah. and they're talking to each other. But I'm there, still awake, going, hey, do you know my friend Brian? <laughs> to the And he's like, yeah. I said, yeah, da, 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 so, so, so. And they go, I see my surgeon. Hey, how you doing? I'm, like, chatting with them just before they put me on. And they're like, okay, we've had enough of you, lady. So, you know, like, that's what I was like, okay. Okay, I've had enough of me. Okay, hang on a second. Hang on a now. second. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just reminding you, save that uterus for me. <laughs> Waste, no, reduce, reuse, recycle. Oh my goodness! <laughs> that changed first. Yeah. Then I got. Then the next day after surgery, I got up and I um, I was feeling pretty good right after surgery, and I so I made my own bed. And the order and the person who comes in to do your lawn, you know, in the not the nurse, but whoever comes. They walked in, they saw me making my bed, and she said, oh, what are you doing? I said, I was feeling pretty good. I felt like getting up. She said, I've never seen anybody make their own. (laughs) And the other thing was, uh, I don't know why I'm picking on this particular thing, but it was, um, uh, so they come in and they explain to you, okay, here's, because, you know, you have abdominal surgery, so me and my roommate, they're saying, okay, um, if you cough, you want to take a pillow and put it over your abdomen because you've just had yourself ripped open, and you're, it's, you know, you want to protect that from opening up again and they said so if you you know cough or or you're sobbing or anything you know whatever it is heavy right and my roommate and I I, she was a lot older than me and me just being totally outrageous I was making her laugh so hard and I said they they forgot to tell us what to do if you're laughing so hard we both had the pillows on our stomach as we were laughing 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 so hysterically after our surgery when I first found out I was sharing a room with this person who, you know, was gray-haired. I was young. She was from a small town. I was from Toronto, and I felt really like, oh, God, I can't believe I've got to be with this person. And I felt a lot of judgment, and, you know, and I was about to go for surgery before, you know, we met right then. It was sort of awkward, like, oh, so you're going to be my college roommate? Well, that's not who I would have chosen. And as it turned out, when we came back, having gone through that experience together, it was she went, I went, but we had the same surgery for the same reasons. It was so bonding, and that laughter, like, I just became my most outrageous self. We were laughing so, so hard. We bonded. It was it was magical that we were together. We became really, really close, and it, we were laughing so much that the nurses came to us and said, would you mind going around to the other patients and cheering them up? Because you're so funny and you guys are having such a fun time we really see how other people would benefit from that so I just started to go room to room with people and I kept and one of the things about about surgery abdominal surgery is um you're they won't let you home until you fart and so so I you know just kept going around to all the rooms saying to everybody have you farted 
have you farted? Because you know you're not getting out of here until you farted. And people are just like, oh, I've just had surgery. And you're like, yeah, but have you farted yet? Because you're, you're in here until you fart. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh. It's the only way you're getting out of here is if you can fart. I also uh, brought all my own food with me to the hospital because, as I said to all the other patients, I went around from room to room. The hospital is run by angels, but the kitchen is run by Satan. Don't eat the food here. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows it was that. a different era of hospitals too. Like now, they have more healthy food. But mm-hmm. so, um, but the other story about pain, which was really, really powerful, was I can remember the first surgery I had lying. Uh, I was gall- it was the year before I had gallbladder surgery, and I was lying alone at this point in the operating room. It was really cold, and you just got a sheet on you, and there was no one in the room but me. So it was kind of like out of that movie Coma. I had this real feeling like I wonder if I'm going to wake up ever. And I had this powerful, powerful experience that was quite transformative where I saw that I was just a hunk of meat, that for all intents and purposes, I was really just, and from these people coming in, I was just a hunk of meat. And in terms of like one, you know, I was a performer, I was, you know, a personality and I had, you know, stuff written about me. And so suddenly I was none of those things. I was just a hunk of meat. And I would never have thought that that could be so beneficial. But it was like it let me it allowed me to let go of a whole bunch of ideas about myself that I thought were beneficial, but actually were holding me in a certain identity and as soon as I just recognized that I, at some level, was just a hunk of meat, it was incredibly freeing. That's surprising. Uh, it, it was counterintuitive. It was not what I expected. And then the second part B of that was, so then I have the gallbladder surgery. And like most humans, I do not like pain. In fact, I would even call myself allergic to pain. And as I try to tell people, my doctor tells me to avoid pain at all costs. So... Uh, you know, I have the surgery and I can remember before whatever some hit of morphine kicked in, really lying in that bed and feeling where they had done surgery on me and it really, really hurt. And I remember so vividly feeling ecstatic because I had had no connection to my body in my life and suddenly pain brought me to a feeling that I had a body and I actually felt so thrilled I, I I thought who knew you could make friends with pain but I'm really excited to feel that this hurts because I feel like otherwise I don't even know if I I always felt sort of numb from the neck down mm. and even though it wasn't a pleasant awakening at that moment any awakening was a pleasant awakening so just feeling any sensation in my body you know so that's you know now as a teacher I teach the body scan as one mm-hmm. of the practices and it was this, probably the practice of all of them that I absolutely hated the most. And every time body scan came up as a possibility, I was like, oh, no, no, I'm leaving. The, I would leave the room if I could. So it took me years and only because I was teaching it that I had to tether myself to that practice because I really didn't want to connect to my body. Mm-hmm. And and now when I do the body scan, I feel so electric. It, I can feel how it makes every part of me come alive and it just made me so interested in how experience changes. You think, oh no, this is how things are. I could never handle something like that. Just like cancer. How many people say, I I hope I never have to go through cancer as though that would be the worst thing that could happen. And then you get cancer and you go through it and you go, oh, actually, yeah. you know, it's not the worst thing and I'm still alive and I 
actually, you know, sounds like a scary word, but it's just a thing. Mm-hmm. And or people because of my eyesight, I have I'm losing my eyesight from uh, retinitis pigmentosa. And people say to me, oh, I can't imagine anything more horrible than losing my eyesight. <laughs> I think, oh, thank you. Well, but, yeah, you'd, you'd think that you're, you know, every aspect mm-hmm. of your everyday life would, would change enormously, right? You know, you, sure. And you would resist that. I think that's probably what people are thinking is that resistance to change. Sure, but what I say in my classes to my students is, okay, uh, you guys, um, by a show of hands, how many of you here, I say, because I don't know you, you know, I don't want to make assumptions, so how many of you here are able to control every aspect of your lives? Every aspect. I said, remember, raise your hands high because I don't see very well. Of course, there's no hands up. They laugh because I'm saying, can you raise your hands a little higher? And they're like, no hands up. I'm like, oh. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, so nobody here can control every aspect of your life. Well, then I guess mindfulness is not about control. Mm. We're not here to control anything. It would be crap if if I told you that you could. Mm. That is dishonest. It has nothing to do with what mindfulness is. Forget about control. It's not about mind control. It's not about thought control. It's when life is dealing us this myriad of uh, experiences some pleasant some painful difficult wonderful how can you stand in your life exactly as it is and kind of play with the elements if I dare say literally like play with the elements exactly as they are and if your elements are because I'm also the facilitator of the mindfulness project at Sick Kids Hospital so when I go to Sick Kids Hospital I say to them how I, I could never say to you, all you've got to do is practice mindfulness and all your worries will go away. Mm-hmm. I said, hey, kids, <laughs> turn that frown upside down. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, like, so it's it, it it just shows me over and over. It, it's not a way to mindfulness practice is in no way a way to escape from our lives or pad the difficult in a way, you know, push it away. Uh, and so increasingly, I just feel uh, my mindfulness practice lets me wade into the midst of difficulty because that's for me where the most interesting stuff is mm-hmm. and get very, very curious about how to like almost like a video game. It, it really is more like that. It's like life has become a video game for me where I'm in it going, oh, OK, that. they're coming for me okay there's the sharks there's the things that eat you and there's the okay you better hide behind you know or you got to do this and you're constantly moving just like in a video game and even though there's a seriousness to the video game you can be very competitive you're really into it you're you're playing for reals but there's but underneath that playing for reals and that competitive like I'm going to win is the recognition that it's play Hmm. and and I'm also a clown and uh Patricia Rockman, who also writes for Mindful.org, is my clown partner, and she's a physician in the area of mental health. And so our clown pieces have been about emotional difficulties. We did a show called Bondage, a birth-to-death show about where she gives birth to me in the first piece, and <laughs> I die in the last piece, and then we have life events in between, including she plays my elderly mother, and I play a middle-aged woman trying to get out on my first date in probably 20 years, and she doesn't want to let me go because she's afraid, you know. So she makes me catheterize her, and 
and cut her disgusting, horrible, gigantic toenails and you know, all these wild prosthetics made. And But it was really about ambivalence, fear, attachment, all of these emotional, you know, you talk about pain, the emotional pain of life. Mm-hmm. When we try so desperately to hold on to things that you can't hold on to. Mm-hmm. Like, can you hold on to your keep and keep your baby a baby forever however cute your baby is however amazing it is there's nothing you can do that will if your baby is going to be alive your baby is going to grow up and it will not be a baby forever and you cannot put it in in uh, plastic and keep it as a cute little baby so people we love die we die things are changing you know even if you've had the most incredibly healthy vibrant life aging will get you so or you, or you have a bad day or or you have a bad day or or you feel hormonally off or you ate something that made you not feeling quite good or um or you didn't drink enough water or your blood sugar is low yeah. or your spouse or friend just said something that you in either interpreted correctly or incorrectly and and so I'll yeah. So, so coming from, you're obviously a very resilient person. What advice do you have in those moments when, when someone is triggered, when you know you're you're just exhausted, you've hit a wall, and maybe you don't want to play that game anymore? You know, you were talking about how you know you can kind of play life like a video game and dig into those difficulties, which you know, as a resilient person, you kind of thrive there. You know, what do you do when you when you hit a wall? So many different things. There's yeah. for sure no one answer. I can give you a bunch of different things that I do. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I scream and I'm horrible, mm. anyways. Mm-hmm. And then, because so for me, m- mindfulness is more about the end than what. So I'll st- I I would say generally speaking, I'm a very passionate person. I'm uh, a very fiery person I I'm a I'm a person who rides the waves of strong emotions like constantly so I still notice I have lots of reactivity even after 20 years of practicing and I have like you know close to 10,000 hours of practice mm-hmm. under me I I still have lots of reactivity but what I notice is like the wave comes up and then right away I'm able the it's there's a moment of pause there where I'm able through my practice that little bit of space that I've cultivated to be able to stop and just check in with myself and go, okay, I can feel you really want to push your partner down the set of stairs right now. But <laughs> the ramif... Okay, so let me just check in with myself. Like, what would the ramifications of that be if I did that? Would I... I'm able to stand back and really just very quickly ask myself, is that... Not intellectually, but just sort of a felt sense almost of like a visceral knowing of... Okay, is that going to take me where I want to go? Is that, if it is... Is that a good end game? If it is, you're on your way down, buddy. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't hesitate. I wouldn't hesitate for a second. But I'm able to stop and go and play the tape for myself really quickly of like noticing, okay, so I push him down a set of stairs and and I really love him. So then I probably would feel really terrible and then I would, you know, and maybe I actually physically hurt him and and or maybe we'd have like a problem in our marriage and I really love being married to him and so it's not that I don't want him or marriage or any of that and so in that moment I'm I'm able to say to him I'm really sorry I I'm hungry and I'm freaking out right now or I've got a big project and I'm really stressed and 
please don't take this personally. I, I know that was really sharp of me and mm-hmm. I'm I'm asking if you can just like not take this on. Don't take my so that's one thing I do. Mm-hmm. Um I I do practice my what I preach a lot, so I'll do the practices like I will if depending on the situation, I will stop, feel my feet making contact with the ground, so move into my felt sense brain network from my a default brain network in neuroscience terms. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I literally will shift into a different brain network by just coming into my body out of the storyline and feel my body, take some breaths, um, and and recognize. I also feel, even though I can be really cranky and sharp, I do know that causing pain to other people is never really anything as an end game for me. It's never anything that makes me happy. Mm-hmm. You and don't get anything out of it in the end. And lately, especially, I have been able to say to myself more and more earlier in the cycle of crank of, of, of aggression, um, how often when I have because I felt justified, I am going to give you a piece of my mind. Mm-hmm. I am going to whatever. And and I started to look back and thought. And I said to myself. Has there ever, can I think of even one time when I thought I am afterwards, I'm so glad I did that. And always afterwards I feel so terrible and I'm like, what? Oh, I'm so sorry I said that to that person. And now that person feels terrible. And where did that get me? Did I, did I gain, did I really gain, even just from the most egotistical standpoint, did I really gain anything at all? Did I did I get one step up on the ladder by making that person feel worse? And me personally, it's always like, yeah, no. So that's helpful. Really, definitely recognizing that there's a lot of pain in the world is really helpful. Coming back to the pain motif, I do really, really see how much pain people are in and how we don't know what's going on in somebody's head. We don't know why this person said this to us or gave us that look or... Is it because they had gas? Is it that they really were giving me a dirty look? You know, did they just, you know, they desperately had to pee as they walked by me and I'm looking at them going, God, I can't believe you're such. So, so I'm learning more and more that in a weird way, I'd have to say, in spite of what the newspaper would tell us, I, my personal experience is that most people are really lovely, kind, given half a chance most people want to help you. Mm-hmm. I know that's not, that may sound like I'm sure lots of people could refute that, but my personal experiences, especially because like I have my cane, mm-hmm. so sometimes when I have my white cane out, there has never been one person, if I said, could you help me cross the street or could you help me this, no matter who I choose, nobody's ever said no. <laughs> not yeah. going to help you. Yeah. And uh, I I do feel also that people love helping people if especially if it's short term you know like if you can just give a person a chance to do something kind for you I see that actually people brighten up if you're not being aggressive about it but you're just really gentle and you know would you mind I see most people are so thrilled people love giving me their seats on the public transportation it took me a long time to accept it and then I started to realize it takes two to tango when that person gives you offers you their seat, it's good to say yes. Because mm-hmm. it's not just about me saying, no, I'm stoic, it's okay. That's actually not, strangely, it's not beneficial to that other person. Mm-hmm. They, I can see, they get something 
from feeling that they did something noble. Mm -hmm. It makes them feel happy that they had the thought to offer a person they felt could use their help something. And I see it in them. They're just so, they're happy to. I've never met anybody who I thought was not happy when they offered me a seat. So if I accept it, it's kind of like. <laughs> they were hoping you would have said no. Yeah, so it's sort of like having to learn how to let go of thinking, no, that's okay. Yeah, I'm okay. Rather than say, oh, oh, thank you. That's so nice of you. Thank you so much. And then I really feel like I'm using every opportunity in life to build a friendly society, a feeling where we humans are wanting to be of assistance to one another, mm -hmm. wanting to recognize that we're all in it together. New York subways are hilarious for that. You, you know, I've really? so many times I've been, to say, um, I'll stop, ask them, excuse me, can you tell me how to get to so-and-so? And then 20 people will come over. Okay, here's how you do Oh, wow. <laughs> like, no. I would think it's like a live and let die I scenario know. that people would just I know. To completely ignore you. But it isn't. <laughs> At least I've never experienced that. People wow. talk to me everywhere. You wouldn't expect that. So it, so in your case, in a way, you're almost, you know, when, when someone offers you a seat and you feel the stoic need to say no, you're, you're giving up control in some way. Yeah. Right. So I, and I see, I see that you, if you want to live in a society where people are softer and kinder and gentler you have to be softer kinder and gentler and also allow other people the opportunity to do the same thing it's like we have to it is again like neuroscience you know neuroscience is you you create a circuit in the brain and then you have to go over that same territory mm -hmm. over and over to create a kind of to strengthen that circuitry in the brain to create a new sort of default in the brain mm -hmm. and I think that you need to give people the opportunity to find ways to be kind and help one another that are within their you know just like with mindfulness practice we say to people you don't necessarily want to start practicing 20 hours on the first time you've ever done it mm -hmm. so to have little tiny practice opportunities like holding a door open for somebody mm -hmm. or a tiny act of kindness that just starts to build oh i helped that person oh because one hilarious thing so you know i'm coming down the steps into the subway and a young woman she's with her friends says uh, excuse me can I help you and I and I I told you I'm now like intentionally accept help <laughs> from people so I said yes thank you that would be great so she helps me down I've got my cane and I hear her and her friends are like one foot away from me her friends say to her that is so nice of you <laughs> to her friends and what I want to say out loud but I don't is blind not deaf <laughs> like, <'cause laughs> you, <should've. laughs> you know what I, I mean imagine. but then I thought that would have that would have put a sour note in a sense into oh. that act of kindness that that person gave yeah. I would have then like maybe made them uncomfortable that they said that rather than laughing to myself that yeah. you know they were so excited to to tell their friend as though I could not hear <laughs> just a, they had to give her that thing you that, just yeah. did for that blind that, that was, was <laughs> as if yeah. I was like another as if I was in a movie or something and then I didn't hear anything and it was kind of funny and I just had to shut my mouth because I was gonna say to and I was like Elaine you know what let that let them let them celebrate. build let them yeah. celebrate that doing something kind for another person is a great act to celebrate <laughs> made you feel like a problem <laughs> really but but, but you know then you go okay you know sure whatever that's yeah. fine that's nice well thank you elaine wow is that it yeah i think that's a great first podcast <laughs> okay yeah. awesome yeah.